welcome to the Officials Podcast, the show where we talk about umpiring and refereeing in sport. We bring you unique perspectives, interesting guests and topical conversations. Our aim is to help individuals, groups and teams across sport and industry share and collaborate on ideas and insights. We invite you to follow our journey. Get involved through Facebook, the Officials Podcast, Welcome to Umpire Referee, the official's podcast, a show where we talk about umpiring and refereeing across all sports. I am your host, Chris Donlan, and joining me in the umpire's room as usual are two of the very best in their respective fields, the first female AFL grand final goal umpire, Chelsea Roffey. G'day, Donners. G'day, Chelsea, And the highly decorated multiple-time grand final, and he's an all-Australian umpire, as we know, Matt Stevick. G'day, Matt. Hi, guys. How are we going? Good, Matt. Tell us, though, how's the baby calf? Uh, it's not too bad. Old age has settled, settled in, but a um, couple of weeks out, hopefully back uh, by round 11. You strained your calf after the... Which game? It was actually during the game. So Adelaide Bulldogs, torrential rain. It was an incredible um, uh, night for footy. Super wet, pretty tough conditions for all involved. But um, just How many tackles from memory? Uh, it, was over, it was 230, so close to a record. If, if it wasn't a record, um, yeah. made, us, made it uh, a tough night for us. But... Um, on the mend and looking forward to some good footy this weekend. Okay, so what have you been doing for your recovery? A few things. So in the beach, plenty of ice the first um, couple of days uh, after it was sore. Plenty of cross-training to sort of keep up a decent level of fitness, um, those sorts of things. And given today's topics about uh, mental health, I mean, how are you going with it? You're used to umpiring every week. How have you dealt with being out for a couple of weeks? If you asked me that question 10 years ago, I probably wouldn't have handled it really well. I, I would be uh, pretty stressed, annoyed and, and wanting to be out there. But to be honest, having done 15 odd years, it's, I've seen it as a good chance to freshen up both mentally and physically. Um, it gets pretty challenging uh, year after year, sort of doing most weeks of footy. So I've seen it as a bit of a positive and um, yeah, looking forward to the back half of the year. Oh, great. Chels, what about you? Any injury concerns or issues that you've had to overcome oh look not not so much the physical injuries but um probably a good topic we've got to discuss today because i I, coming back from a a little issue i had during a game um managed to salvage it so it wasn't as bad as it could possibly be but um just a bit of a mental struggle um with a bit of an issue i had in my game a a poor decision and bouncing back from that so um all right we won't talk about that Let's, a bit later on. Yeah, I think it's yeah? a good chance today to talk about it. Let's, okay, but before we do, let's just remind everyone about our Facebook page, The Officials Podcast. Uh, send us a comment or question. And Mark Jennings has actually sent us a question. Uh, and perhaps we can, it's a good segue into that, Chelsea. And Mark says, how do you mentally recover after a bad game or feedback? It's one of the issues that he's always had. So, all right, let's throw it open. How do we, how do we deal with it, guys? It is, it is a good question. I think it's something that... Um when you look at umpires, there's this expectation that I think a lot of us put on ourselves to to be perfect <laughs> and to give perfect performances. And quite often the, the level of scrutiny and expectation um, is for us to be these ultra superhumans that don't make mistakes. So I think learning how to recover from, from feedback that might not be so great or if you feel like you've had a bad game, um, I think that's a crucial component of actually being a good umpire. And I think the first, the first thing I'd actually say to that question is when you talk about like a bad game, is it a bad game 
or is it a bad decision? Or a bad moment. Or a bad moment, exactly. Because, look, I guess harping back to that one I, I mentioned just before. Um, can we can we go through it a little bit? Let's we can go through it because well, you were there. Yeah, let's <laughs> for all the detail. Um, so it was just basically a, a, a crucial moment where I, I took my eye off the ball and I became more concerned with what the players were doing next to me yep. uh, rather than keeping my eye on the ball. as It was a dropping ball um, from a, a long kick. So I expected the ball to drop. Uh, for that moment, just lost my focus, uh, looked to my side, and before I knew it, look, the ball had gone through, and I didn't know which side of the post. And I, and then it sort of from there unraveled into a bit of a situation because I got my signals mixed up, and then I... And we had some issues with our match comm as well, which didn't help. That's right. So by that point, I realised, look, I have to review this decision um, yep. and, and try to remedy what had happened, um, but the match comm wasn't working, so I couldn't actually communicate to the field umpire, and so I ended up basically running out to the field of play and, and stopping play and just saying, look, we have to review this. Um, and look, in the end, we got the right outcome. So that's, I suppose, the, the silver lining that comes out of it. Um, but as you say, it was a bad moment. Um, if I look objectively at the game, I had a fantastic game, <laughs> except mm. for that one mm. moment. And I think to, to sort of answer Mark's question, I think you've got to be able to, to take perspective and see the whole, um, not just look at one moment and say, well, I'm a bad umpire or I, I had a bad game. Um, and I think being able to acknowledge the feelings that come up as a result, you know, we all have moments yeah. where we're not proud of, that's a big part of it and being self-aware enough to know what feelings you're going to go through. Um, but then also seeing the good as well as the bad and acknowledging that, okay, mistakes are going to happen, but it's how you handle them and how you bounce back that really matters. Correct. There were a couple of things there for me on the day, Chelsea, and you, you just touched on one there was how you bounce back. So the first thing is that, at the end of the day, we got the right outcome. And I know that personally, you know, you, you don't want to be the um, the reason why we've, we've gone down that process and no one does. But the second part was the conversation that we had and just the check-in at three-quarter time to make sure that we're all okay and we still had we still had another quarter to umpire and we didn't want to follow something up with another mistake. And to me, the thing that I took from that was, no, no, we've got this. And there was a real inherent confidence in all of us to go, let's park that, let's move on, let's make sure that the next 30 minutes is as good as it possibly can be. And so for me, I got a lot of confidence out of that, knowing that you knew what had happened. We all acknowledged it, we compartmentalised it and were able to move on. And I think that was really critical for the game. That's it. And I think, you know, there's a time, compartmentalise is a great word, there's a time for performing and, and doing your job and there's a time for analyzing and I think you know the analysis can come later and that's where you learn the lessons and you you then look to next week because you've yep. got to be able to look at next week you've got to get out again and, and make sure that you don't drop your head um, you've got to go out and train positively and make sure you're not affecting the people around you in a negative way so I think that next week or two as well it's about building confidence at training and making sure you're putting in the effort to build the confidence again so you're not letting one little misdemeanour actually affect mm. your entire performance mm. and performances to come. And how often, and I'll throw this to you as well, Matt, that you think you might have made an error and it can consume you at the time, but when you go back and look at it, and it's actually, it doesn't appear to be an error, it doesn't end up being an error. So we've, we've just got to make sure that we don't get too consumed and bogged down in things that we really have no control over. You've got to learn to be your own advocate, I think, in something like umpiring. There are plenty of people who are going to, have a provide crack at feedback. you. <laughs> <laughs> provide, yes, feedback, solicited yeah. or otherwise. Um, you've got to learn to advocate for yourself and, and see 
everything and see things as they are, not just the negatives. Yeah. And I also think um, using your peers, Mark, is really important. So, I mean, we've all gone through um, instances where we haven't been happy with our performance, but I certainly over the years have called upon my closer friends on the umpiring list to talk through some challenges or some issues that I've had in a game. Um, I tend to find that whilst my peers are, are very honest with me, they're, they're also really supportive and can give you some of that confidence back that you need going into uh, the next week. And look, I think sometimes it's really important to um, dig a bit deeper to work out why maybe you didn't get a certain thing right. And then there are other When do you time- do that though, Matt? When's that time? It's, it's, surely it's not in the game. No, it's certainly obviously post-game or the next day. But um, my point around this is sometimes um, you can dig deep for no real reason. Yeah. Sometimes it's just um, you, you just made a blue. And okay. I've certainly been in that case before. I, I remember a game, two minutes into a game, and I made a shocking call. And going through my mind at the time, whilst I knew pretty quickly I'd, I'd made a big blue, um, I sort of, you know, mentally threw the challenge out to myself that I had three and a half quarters to go yeah. and I had to try and deliver a good result, you know, parking aside the the one really poor decision I, I made early on. So um, hopefully, Mark, that helps helps you out going forward. And just something that you just mentioned in terms of support that really resonated with me, Stev, um, I think if you can be the sort of umpire who reaches out to others not only to show your support but be willing to accept it it's so often it's easy to to fall into your own bubble where you think look I'm oh look I haven't performed or I've dropped the standard or what have you but everyone goes through this and I think the more you can create an environment where everyone's supporting each other and sharing these experiences the more you go out there together and you you know you aim to get the right result and you're there in a supportive way and you realize look we're all in this together yeah and there's also he talks about mental recovery and you know, for me, that real cognitive load that you've got through a quarter of footy, even to have that five, six minutes at the break, just to, you know, have some levity, have some fun. I think that, you know, if it's in your personality and you, you, you respond well to that, having a bit of fun is actually a really good way to just break things down and remove some of the tension as well. So we don't have to be serious all the time. We can, we can have a bit of fun and bring a bit of levity into, into umpiring and sometimes just laugh at your mistakes and move forward, I think. I'm laughing a lot when I umpire. I wonder if that says something. All right. (laughs) So this is part two of our uh, mental health um, check-in, I guess. And so we're going to take a closer look at mental health and see what we can do to assist ourselves and others. Um, at the end of our last episode, we did hear from Peter Slocum. She's Vice President of Corporate Health for Medibio. Uh, and, and that's an initiative that the AFL umpires are using uh, to check in on our mental health. Uh, today I checked in. It was great. I've been wearing my heart rate monitor as well, so feeding in biometrics into the app and getting real-time responses around how I'm going mentally. So it's a really important topic and it's a, really, it's an, a challenge that confronts not just umpires but people across all industries guys so Chelsea I believe you've got a question for Peter yeah look really looking forward to digging deeper into this topic but the first question I've got is we now know so much more about mental health but globally um, it remains one of the greatest health concerns to so many so what needs to change to effectively manage mental health 
That's a good question. Mental health is the biggest um, issue of our time. We have gotten much better at understanding how prevalent it is and what it looks like. But there's a big difference between awareness and getting much better at either preventing or treating mental health. What really needs to change is that we need to jump in further upstream instead of um, throwing more life rafts in um, downstream when people get into trouble. We need to ask ourselves why mental health is increasing and we know a lot about that. Um, and we need to ask ourselves how people can intervene earlier. We also need to change the way we treat mental health so that uh, it's not something that can only be done by um, a very few um, physicians. Three kind of key points. Um, mental health has increased a lot because of the lifestyles we're living. It's entirely treatable and we need to make sure that we um, pay attention to what contributes to our own poor mental health and how to change that. We also need to get um, a lot better at making sure people know their own patterns and cycles and when they're moving into mental health issues um, and, and, and respond to that a lot faster. Thanks, Peter. Uh, next question. You and your team uh, were responsible recently for rolling out Australia's biggest mental health check-in late last year. What were your greatest learnings, issues and opportunities out of the initiative? We've learned um, so much from effectively the world's first um, fully digitised and biometric mental health check. One of the things that we learned is that um, Australia, the world, needs to start um, screening for mental health before it becomes problematic. Um, and I think that's also one of the things that we need to uh, change in society to effectively manage it. Because it's entirely foreseeable, we need to make sure that we, um, that we check it. One of the early things we noticed is how ready people are to engage in this program, uh, that if you could find out how you were tracking without having to go and see a doctor or a psychologist um, and nobody knew, would you do it? And so people said resoundingly, yes. We also found particularly for men um, who are not usual treatment um, seekers for mental health issues that they found it a quantifiable and objective way of working and that um, made a lot more men able to come forward which I think has also changed um, the kind of results that we're getting. A couple of key things that we've learned from having um, Australia and possibly the world's most up-to-date data set is that um, mental health is getting tougher for younger people. Um, it's also getting tougher for men. So for the first time, males are equaling females on uh, depression. Um, although for anxiety, females are a lot, um, a lot uh, higher still. The other thing we found is that most people didn't know that they had an issue. So you can only engage in professional services or treatment if you know that you have an issue that needs to be fixed. We found that when we asked people whether they had an issue, most of them said no, um, and an average of about 60%, so um, kind of mid 70% of um, men and about 58% of women um, didn't know that they had um, a mental health issue and that doing the, um, the check-in actually um, explained that. The other thing that we found out um, is that depression is increasing dramatically, um, although anxiety seems to be increasing. Um, uh, depression um, used to be half as common as anxiety and we're consistently finding 
um, that it equals um, anxiety in its um, in its uh, prevalence now. The opportunities that come out are exactly um, the reason that we're doing this, and that is to help people get the right treatment with the right person at the right time. One of the things that we learned is that we can create significant change in people's mental health just by helping them to understand where they're at and breaking that down into bite-sized, kind of measurable chunks. I think the last thing that's really important that we've learned, particularly when it comes to umpires in this particular case or, or sporting codes, is that we can now predict particular mental health concerns that are likely to arise based on personality and gender and age. So say for example with um, people involved in sports, they can be highly driven, have high self-criticism and perfectionism and that makes them successful but it also has a significant impact on them when they're not successful and it also means that they're trying to drive in fifth gear all the time which uh, our bodies weren't necessarily um, designed to do. Great points made there Peter. Just broadly, how do we look at, as a society, changing the attitudes towards mental health? It's a good question because it should be a we. It's not something that governments can do or health professionals can do. I think one of the important things is to start to associate it with high performance, that people who are absolutely at the top of their game, um, again, like athletes and, um, and, and umpires and uh, professional um, people involved in professional sports, um, is that we need to recognise that this is not something that is associated with people who don't function well. If you take some of the greatest achievers or the greatest athletes in history, um, they all have their um, their flip side of that. So Phelps and Thorpe and you know um, sports people at all levels um, constantly. Uh, you know we shouldn't be surprised. Um, we should remember that. You can achieve uh, a lot and still have um, something that we need to, to work on. So I think we need to normalise it. We need to see it as part of high performance. I think part of what we're aiming to do is demystify it. So instead of being something that you can sort of choose to sort of make real or not, it is real. It's a real medical issue. It's incredibly common. 45% of us or more at some point will experience a mental health disorder. And so when we can actually measure it and see it coming, um, I think that is uh, a really important part of how we change our attitudes to, uh, to mental health. It's entirely foreseeable and we need to say, this is going to happen at some point. Let's actually just pay attention to it. And if you can see on your watch, for example, that um, the mood's dropping or tracking, we can, we can change that. So I think when we can measure it, it's a lot easier for people to get motivated to change it rather than feel like it's some sort of um, you know, cloudy, uh, poor reputation kind of non-coping um, uh, disease the way people used to, to, think, um, to think of it. Um, as I said, we'll all experience this at some point in time and it's different to a disease that you do or you don't have. So the question is just, let's get over it. Let's not have a big focus of a campaign when someone comes out of the closet with a disorder. Let's stop being surprised by it. And let's just say, look, we're all um, prone um, because of things within and outside of our control at any point in time. Um, let's just get on with it and um, work on picking that up a little bit faster. Um, and um, you know, and, and changing the outcomes.
So Peter, explain Medibio's technology in providing objective measures of mental health and how this could be a global breakthrough for millions of people. Mental health up until now has always been subjective. It's always been that people need to um, complete a, um, a survey or answer questions to a doctor or psychologist. We've never had the ability to have people look at it like a blood test before. Medibio's technology is based on the body's circadian patterns. So it's a little bit like the, um, the system, the autonomic nervous system, staying um, elevated or in a fight or flight response um, to the point where it starts to lead to poor mental health. So the ability to assess when that's occurring and also the ability to treat someone and see that the body's autonomic nervous system and um, uh, that mental health improves um, is, a, is a massive game changer for, um, for, for mental health. It means that we can now measure it instead of having people feel that there's something just wrong with how they're coping. And it also means that we can um, learn from it and get much better with the um, uh, treatment responses. Up until now, mental health has been the only area of medicine that has not been quantifiable. Um, and so the ability to do that in everything from stigma to treatment is, um, um, is absolutely huge. Gee guys, that was great to hear from Peter. A uh, couple of things that resonated for me was around you know, using your support networks, um, but also the availability and use of technology now in identifying you know, hot or potential issues around mental health. I'm just wondering, what were your key takeouts? What, what did you think? For me, it's that looking now at mental health as, a, as something that happens because of our lifestyles and, and being able to yeah. look at it as something that can be normalised and, and demystified uh, and therefore it's, it's not a bad thing to be seen as vulnerable now. Mm. Um, I mean, look, that probably takes a bit longer in practice um, when you're in a perhaps a tra traditional area such as umpiring that isn't always open to you being vulnerable or, or saying, look, I'm, I'm feeling like there's a weakness here or I think there's been that attitude around mental health, um, mm. the bit of the stigma there that to me... Um, the objective nature of this measurement can break down. We've seen many sport. There's many examples of sports people or professional athletes actually, um, you know, disclosing their issues around mental health. And I think it's the ability to these people role model the fact that you've got to embrace the entire experience. Mm. So you can't be on all the time. You mm. can't be on a high all the time, riding high all the time. Um, and we all go through um, issues with mental health and challenges. Um, it's being able to break that down and be willing to put your hand up and say, right, you know, how are we going to prevent as much as we can? Mm. And I think uh, it's really important to note when the term mental health comes up, we're not just simply talking about depression. We're talking about um, things around stress and anxiety. And certainly from my personal experience and those close to me, we've certainly or I've certainly witnessed firsthand and experienced myself varying levels of of stress and anxiety, um, both to do with my job and at a personal level. So I think it's really important to have a, have a really broad understanding of what mental health or what mental, mental fitness um, represents mm. in its whole. Um, and then there's obviously, um, you know, a lot of work that we need to do to 
try and become more proactive in um, in preventing or minimising um, things before they get too out of hand. Yeah, there was something that resonated with me, Matt, and having gone through the initial mental check-in and now this one most recently is I always understood sleep to be critical for, for to performance, but more so from an energy, energy point of view. But I'm quickly understanding and learning that sleep's just as important to... Um, to reset, regrow blood cells, or sorry, brain cells, all these sort of things. So there's lots of different things that, you know, factor into one's mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the mental health check-in um, conducted by MediBio looks at a couple of things. It looks at um, the traditional methods of, of understanding where individuals are at, but then also the objective measure is really important. So what they've been able to look at is um, at rest and, and, and the heart rates, being able to uh, understand it in, in far greater detail. Mm. And I think it's interesting when you, you think about something like mental health um, and the idea of the brain and the mind as a muscle. Um, you know, how, how many hours do we spend looking at our physical health and, and what's happening on the outside? Uh, we're in a really exciting time for, for starting to look at what is on the inside and the psychological factors that are just so important to everything we do and mm. the ability to, as you spoke about before, rewrite um, you know, neural pathways and neuroplasticity. Like There's a whole world out there that's just so exciting with regard to where this can go, yeah. um, not only in terms of high performance, but just you know, staying well. well. And what about, you get that sense that... and you know, the proliferation of devices and this notion of always being connected. Someone can always email me, always get in contact with me. And I just wonder how much time do we spend, you know, you know without our digital devices essentially and just being present in the moment. And that's something that I'm being tr- I've been grappling with because, you know, with me, I'm always with the gadgets. Um, I've usually got multiple gadgets, but being able to just reflect and just spend some time with myself, whether it's walking the dogs without any distractions and things like that. I think that's, for me, that that's important. Yeah, and I think um, sort of related to that, and, and Peter uh, talked a bit about it um, in our last episode, summing up, um, in our jobs, and it's not just uh, to do with AFL umpiring, but when you're sort of in, in a zone that's pretty high stress, high emotion, there's a there's a real sharp focus on decision-making, it's, it's pretty frenetic over a couple of hours. And so your ability to um, de-stress and unwind post-game is, is really challenging but really important. So some of the things you talked about um, that maybe help you um, wind down and things post-game and so forth is really important. And if you look across world sport, there's been lots of examples, certainly of, of swimmers who compete at yeah. night. They need to get up for the next morning. And they've had awful issues in trying to come down off the high to then be ready to compete again the next day. It was interesting. I spent some time at a club earlier this year. And obviously, we, you know, we, we talk about the training side of things and the rules. But talking to, to some of the players and the coach, uh, it was a warm day. And were, it, was, it was, I think it was a 30-plus day. And I said, why are we training in the middle of the day? And they said, we value sleep over physical preparation, which I thought was a really interesting uh, insight and shift. Because what they were saying was, we can train during the day, but sleep's critical. It's critical to performance and it's critical to recovery. Um, so I thought that was really interesting in how perhaps um, the science and the data is starting to shift uh, the mindset around how we, you know, we train our athletes and how we prepare. 
And a lot of um, elite teams actually employ sleep specialists yes, now, which is quite right. fascinating, you know, making sure things like having the right pillow and having the right mattress and those practical elements that enable such a crucial component to, to get right mm. and make these, um, these improvements. And I was just reflecting again on the question that we got earlier around how do we mentally unwind? And I just took myself into the moment post-game when we're, we sit down and we're, we're together. I mean, how much time do we spend checking in and making sure that we're okay because I might have something that's really troubled me throughout a game and I might not disclose or share it. I just wonder, you know, should we be more open to, to disclosing and discussing these things to just put them out on the table and, you know, declare a bit of vulnerability to, to be able to move forward, I guess, or move on? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and I think we've already said today that uh, certainly uh, talking about things um, can help, can help you um, overcome the issue and move forward in, in a positive way. Interestingly, uh, back in November, 30-odd umpires uh, were involved in the first mental health check-in. Um, a few of the key results showed AFL umpires are generally incredibly resilient, perfectionistic, self-regulated and control self-critical and accountable to their decisions and performance. And that all sounds fantastic. But the flip side also tended to be uh, a lack of expression and holding information. So thoughts, emotions and feelings internally. Uh, and this can often be the price or, or have a price on our mental health. So I found that really interesting. And I think it's what that shows, you know, it's, it's not just about learning to execute um, the objective nature of the game and, and execute your role out there, but face the emotions and work through the emotions. And, and you know, Chris talked about having the ability to, to sit and be present and reflect on your own. Um, that's just so important in, in developing that self-awareness so that you can understand the reactions or responses that are happening um, so that you can move forward. So do we have a cultural issue in just generally in, in officiating or umpiring that it's it's... By its very nature, it's it's very negative. We seem to focus on what's wrong as opposed to what's right. It's a negativity bias, isn't it, of humans? Yeah. But also I think it's very challenging in a competitive environment to to sometimes put your hand up and say, you know, oh, I've made a mistake or kind of that transparency uh, takes a little while to, I think, emerge in a culture. And mm. I feel like we, we are at a good point now, but there's always, I think, more... <laughs> that we can, can shift towards. Yeah. Um, I think we're a lot more open well, than we used to be. What do you think, Matty? Yeah, I think showing a level of vulnerability doesn't in any way detract from uh, who you are as a person or, or what you are in terms of how, how well you perform out there on, on the field. I think it shows great leadership and, you know, I guess you don't want to just be putting your hand up all the time and admitting fault all the time to the point where you know you become so negative and so self-doubting yeah. about things but um all right so clubs right at the end of the or any sporting team they either win or they lose we as officials we walk off and we might have one or two bad decisions or have you know mostly good decisions the success seems to come, we, it's a delayed success if you like. So it might be finals or, or it might be the ultimate and the grand final. So my question is, how can we celebrate little successes or little wins along the way to make sure that we're, you know, we're, we're feeding that need to, to feel that we're, we're you know, doing something good or there's some sort of win there for us? For me, that's where it's, it's you look at the grand finals or the, the big game appointments and that's where you've got 
extrinsic motivation where mm. the intrinsic stuff is where you are motivated by the process and you're able to break it down and go, look, I'm going to be motivated by the things that are within my control. Um, so the things that are outside of my control, which, okay, maybe they've happened or maybe they're appointments. Um, like for me personally, I know that you can sort of aspire to do a grand final, but ultimately you want your goals to be things that are, I think, more intrinsically motivated that you can control in terms of your effort yep. and improvement um, yeah, so that I mean, that's my personal view yeah. on it. What about a support network? Do you got? I've got I've got a very close knit support network of people that I really trust, and they check in on me quite regularly. Do you guys have people that you confide in or are watching out for you, other than just you know the friends and things like that? Yeah, I certainly do, and um, love to take an interest in athletes from other sports. I'll I'll remember reading a uh, an article about Novak Djokovic and him talking about his support network and probably a bit more extensive than yours and mine, but really, really um, highlighted the importance. Um, yeah, he can train and do all the stuff uh, he can do individually, but unless he's got um, a great support network around him, um, he he won't be able to compete at his best. So I found that really mm. uh, interesting to read. I actually find sometimes that sort of moving the focus off of yourself um, and... I guess being of service to others, uh, even if you don't know them that well. So it might mm. be a if you like a stranger support network. So you know, in recent times, I've gone out to a couple of um, community umpiring groups and spent time there. And you sort of do something like that, and, and you get a lot more perspective around. Oh, don't you? What's that? <laughs> don't you? A lot yeah, more you perspective. You certainly do, and some of them don't hold back either <laughs> uh, with their feedback. But um, you, it just brings more perspective around something that may have been troubling you. Mm. Um, so for me, I think it's partly the, you know, the people who are close to you, who you can confide in, but it's also that ability to step outside of your own head and your own bubble and, mm. and, and just look at the bigger picture. Yeah. Matt, if others wanted to get involved, I, we mentioned this in our last podcast, um, how do they get involved in the uh, mental health check-in? Uh, so they can go on mentalhealthchecking.com, uh, either individually or, or as an organisation who may be interested. Um, I think the key, the real key out of this and, and what the global check-in is trying to achieve is to get more people talking about it and to understand that there's lots of simple things that can be done in a proactive way to mm. go some way to um, help all of us in terms of our, our mental health. And things related to that is our sleep and what's our quality of sleep like. What, what, are, what are the stresses in our life? What can we do about that to maybe improve? Yep. So it might be assessing or removing some things which, which cause some of that stress at any point in time. Um, and I think just the more conversations we have, normalising mental health or mental fitness, it's something, you know, I think one in four across their lives, uh, people go through uh, some form of, of, of a mental health challenge. So... It's, it's out there, it's everywhere, and we need to support each other in, um, in, in helping out. All right, I want to finish this one on a positive. Uh, give our listeners, what's one thing you do to mentally prepare well for games? Maybe I'll start then. I've got a little book that I keep, and I started writing that book from my very first game, and in that little book I'd post the teams and put the appointment sheet in there and I'd 
write about players who you know might be ball winners, others that might try and negate certain players, what the rucks might look like, um, you know what the forward structures may be. Quite elaborate, detailed essays almost when I was uh, very inexperienced. To now, it's just a, it's essentially I use that as my passage to sort of switch on, I guess. Um, and so it's more just a good keepsake, but it's it's my mental flick to say, okay. Get ready for game mode now. Do you guys have anything that you do? I spend a bit of time, <clears throat> you used the word presence earlier on, um, and I have a few key phrases that I, I tend to repeat in my mind. So self-talk something that's pretty big for me. And usually it's something along the lines of be here, you know, and you walk out onto that ground and you soak in the atmosphere. You know, my MCG on a Saturday afternoon or the crowd's building and you just you've got to remember that you're in a, a position where you're you're part of something that's mm. um pretty fab yeah. and um that idea of be here yeah be in the moment um at, that really locks you into i think your senses as well yeah. and so it has that impact where it um you're able to to see clearly feel hear, and just take in what's happening around you which is crucial for yeah. us i add, i like to add as well just as we go or as we talk as a field group even as a boundary and goal Let's try and have a little bit of fun. <laughs> we can smile. Um, yeah, it doesn't and always you have, have to a be beautiful seen. smile, Chris. I must say. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Um, no, I think any sport confidence um, in anything we do is is vitally important. And so for me, um, similar to Chelsea, I have a bit of a um, catch cry, uh, call it whatever you want, around just going out and umpiring with a great sense of freedom, but also. Um, I've got in my mind a few instances from recent games of things where I executed, be it a decision or managed something quite well. By simply remembering those or, or um, imagining those, and it doesn't take too long at all, allows you to have that um, confidence to go out and, um, and try and do the best you can. Mm. And just on that, I know we've got to wrap things up, but that whole thing around the, you know, the beauty and the brilliance of the mind, visualising, you know, as Matt's mm. just said, even things that maybe weren't 100% great, revisualize them because you can train your brain to get it right. Mm. Um, and the brain doesn't know the difference between doing and imagining. So I think, yeah, that mindset where you're, you're visualizing can be incredibly powerful. Okay. Uh, I won't ask where you're off to, Matt. Or what are you doing this weekend? Uh, doing I'll probably watch the NBA finals. Um, Tomorrow. Wonderful uh, series so far. Yep. And, um, Who are you on? Golden State. Yeah, it's going to be hard for LeBron. Yeah, it's, it's been fascinating to watch. And even just quickly, game uh, six, Golden State, some of the greatest superstar basketballers of all time had their worst uh, second quarter pretty much of all time. Yeah, and they come out and hit their threes. And, you know, in terms of the mental, yeah. you know, um, flicking a switch and, you know, quarter three from quarter two couldn't have been any more different. And so... Well, there's again, a strong narrative around how they've done this. So... All, basically, all their finals, they, they're they known as the third quarter. Yeah. The third quarter team. They just come out and blow teams away. Yeah. yeah. And again, I think a, a massive or a, a huge powerful impact on that is is between the years. And, you know, um, once they can achieve that two and three times, um, they believe, obviously, regardless of where they are, they mm. can they can come back in the third and, um, and win the game. Yep. Charles, you got a tip for the... Finals in the Ooh, NBA? Well, I was going to say, I, oh, I don't know about tips, but um, th- what you've just reminded me of is that I think the true greatness comes out with that ability to 
to just come out and not be influenced by what's gone before, mm. isn't it? It's that Face ability. Adversity and just yeah, take it on. Just consistency and, and nail it um, well, and trust in yourself. Well, who? Oh, let's, quick question then, without notice. Who's the best athlete or the greatest athlete in the world? Oh, God. I think Roger Federer. I think his um, all-round brilliance as a player, his humility, his ability to be consistent in terms of performance, that's, I think, what we measure greatness by, how good you are for how long. Um, For me, he's, he's number one. Chelsea, you're still pondering? You might have. I'm pondering because he's probably my number one. I'm not just saying this. Um, but he's just – the composure is just incredible, isn't it? He's, he's magic to watch. Yeah. But another one I think who I really admire is um, Misty Copeland. She's a dancer. Yes. Um, what I love about her is she just didn't take no for an answer. Yeah. You know, she was um, you know, African-American growing up, had decided that she wanted to – I think she was 12 when she started dancing – and um, basically was told, look, no, you don't really have the right body shape. You're not really going to make it. Um, even people who kind of are, are meant to dance, you know, only very rarely make it. And mm. she just she just persevered and yeah. she's fantastic. And so that's someone I really admire. Yeah. Yeah, I used to I used to be a Roger fan as well, a big mm. one, I still am. Yeah. Uh, I look at Serena and what she does and how she just dominates the competition. Um, but I, I think... You know, I'm more leaning towards LeBron now. <laughs> the longevity, uh, you know, the best players in the world are all playing in that sport and he just beats up on everyone regardless. Um, so I'm moving towards LeBron. Um, you know, I don't think he's past MJ, but uh, that's another discussion and debate for another time. Okay, so Matt, we know you're not going anywhere this weekend. Chels, where are you off to? Off to Launceston. Launceston? My, yeah. Right, who's playing down but, there? Uh, Hawthorne and uh, Port Adelaide. Should be a yeah good game. Okay. They're all good games, but looking They're forward all good to games. it. Uh, and I'm off to Eddie Had on Sunday for North Melbourne and Brisbane. All right, guys, that's all we've got time for today. Great chat. A reminder: you can get involved in the conversation by joining us or uh, liking our Facebook page, the Officials Podcast, and don't forget to rate this podcast and whatever it is the platform you're downloading or streaming from. 